0: Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimia. David's brother and Jonadab was a very crafty man and he said to him "O son of the king why are you so haggard morning after morning will you not tell me Amnon said to him I love Tamar my brother Absalom's sister Jonadab said to him lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill And when your father comes to see you say to him let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill and when the king came to see him Amnon said to the king please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat them from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it, and made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber, that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me but he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar.
1: After two full years, Absalom had sheep-sharers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep-sharers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, Then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked and behold many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain and jonadab said behold the king's sons who come as your servant said so it has come about and as soon as he had finished speaking behold the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept and the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmah, the son of Aninadab, the king of Geshur. And David mounted, mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Hamnam since he was dead
2: well we've just heard a reading that is hard to hear and it's a tragic scene and we've been brought face to face with the reality of unchecked sin and injustice and inevitably in a gathering this size for some of us a number of the issues we're addressing this morning will be personally acutely painful and if you find you'd really like to talk or pray with someone well please do that please find a small group leader or Leonie, or myself, Anna, or Henry, or a trusted friend. And we will listen, and we won't be shocked by anything you say. And we want to support you and serve you, because this is what being a church family is all about. Well, in preparation, I was asking myself, why is this second half of 2 Samuel so horrible? Why do we need to look at chapters like this? Well, what we've seen in the first half of this book is how good it is to have a righteous king. And so we've seen the high point of David's kingdom and the wonder of his good rule. And in chapter eight fifteen, there's a sentence that summarizes it. I'll just read it for us. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And we've seen the high point of this kingdom, a great high point. And at that high point, the Lord promised that from David's line would come an eternal king who would rule forever in perfect justice. But what we're seeing in the second half of this book is the need for such a righteous king being made utterly clear. This section of the book shows us the kingdom being ruined as a result of David's failure in righteousness. And actually, the end of this section runs to the end of chapter 20. And there we get a a parallel author's comment summarizing. And this time it starts, now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. There's no reference to David or his equity or his justice. But there's a military ruler in charge. And that is because David's righteous rule has capitulated. The The catalyst was in chapter 11. David's adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. David had ignored God's word and he's a compromised king, and the rot at the top has set into the kingdom. What we have in these chapters, really though, is a stark picture of the world we live in, a world that thinks it's inconsequential to ignore the word of our Maker, and so a world where inevitably damage is caused. And what we have in these scenes is a, world, a picture of a world where the limitations of human justice are plain to see. And so this morning we see the consequences of unchecked sin in the story of Amnon and Tamar and Absalom. And we will see the tragedy of injustice as David fails to rule rightly. But we will also see this morning that this is not the end of the story. And 2 Samuel is trying to direct our gaze to the the future, to what is to come, so that we see that in the darkness of this passage, our eyes are directed, well, to one like the sun rising in the morning, who is perfect in righteousness and rules in love, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so let's look at the story, the consequences of sin, this is our first point. Well, chapter 13 is a story of the damage caused by unchecked sin. First, we're introduced to the characters. We're told in verse 1 that Absalom and Amnon are David's sons. And that Absalom has a sister, Amnon's half-sister, David's daughter. And she's called Tamar. And right away, we're introduced to Amnon's sinful desire. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time Amnon David's son loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Tamar is beautiful and she's a woman of marriageable age and Amnon has made her the object of his fantasy. He claims to love her, but we'll see that it's lust. And there's a sense that even at this point, he knows that he can't indulge this desire. Tamar is his half-sister. And he recognizes that she would not be persuadable to partake in his sordid scheme. And right away, it's a warning about desire. Just because we want something, or the urge is strong, or it feels right, it does not mean it is right or good. It's a warning about desire. It's a warning then about who we listen to. And we'll see that words matter in this story. And Amnon has the choice of who he can listen to. At first, Jonadab enters the scene and speaks. And Jonadab's words are wicked. Look at verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimear, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Everything to do with Jonadab. Echoes Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, where the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to sin. Like the serpent, Jonadab is crafty. And his devilish advice is to trick Tamar to come near to Amnon so that uh, he can eat from her hand. And there we hear just echoes of the fruit eaten by Adam and Eve. Jonadab's words are like the hissing of the serpent. Fulfill your desire. It feels right. Take Eat, Amnon, and Amnon listens, and it's a step further into sin, and the deceit works. Tamar comes, and the horror of the scene is just in her kindness and her innocence and her obedience to her father, she makes him food, she prepares cakes, she sets them before him, and then Amnon demands more, verse 11, but when she brought them near to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. And at this moment, in desperation, while Tamar speaks, she appeals to God's word. And these are words of warning, they're words of wisdom, and they're opportunities for Amnon to stop. Verse 12, she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And those words there are, Words that echo the words spoken by Simeon and Levi in Genesis 34 when their sister Dinah was defiled and they said this is an outrageous thing. Such a thing is not done in Israel. This behavior has never been right and it never will be and it's a crime against Tamar. The word "violate" speaks of oppression and causing affliction and turmoil and humiliation. And then there are more words. Tamar appeals to the impact on her. As for me, where could I carry my shame? The which would leave her broken and in pieces. It's a cry for mercy to think of the consequence for her. And then she speaks more words. And remarkably, she urges Amnon to think of the consequences for him. As for you, you'll be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. And the word fool is Nabal. And we met a man called Nabal in 1 Samuel, and he opposed the Lord, and he was struck down. Amnon will not only damage her, he'll harm himself too. And then more words, a final appeal to halt Amnon. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. For her to marry Amnon would be irregular. But David let her get into this situation with apparently little thought. And so perhaps he would sanction a marriage. It's a last appeal for her future. At least as Amnon's wife, she'd have some kind of protection, some kind of provision. But verse 14, he would not listen to her. And being stronger than her, he violated her and lay with her. And it's a terrible crime. And it is a picture of unchecked sin. And it only gets uglier in verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. These are difficult verses. But here God's word exposes sin and it exposes the lie that lust can satisfy. Amnon's sin has not delivered what he wanted because sin never will deliver. The prophet Jeremiah describes it as like seeking water from a broken cistern. And in the end, it produces hatred. And we see this in the world. The fool Amnon blames Tamar for the fact that lust never satisfies. And he sends her away. And it's a further injustice towards her. What we have in this chapter is a picture of a world without a righteous king, a scene showing the picture of the consequences of unchecked sin. And it's happening in Israel, well, because this kingdom has gone rotten at the top. And the author wants us to see this. And so the chapter starts in verse uh, 13, verse 1, you maybe noticed it, with a very deliberate emphasis that Absalom is David's son and Amnon is David's son. And this is all happening in David's family. And shockingly, Amnon's sin, well, it mirrors David's sin with Bathsheba. And Absalom's sin, we'll see, when he murders, well, it mirrors David's murder of Uriah. And that kind of thing is the way of the world. President John F. Kennedy was a notorious womanizer, and so was his father. We live in a culture that glorifies the so-called right to pursue any sexual desire a person might have. And if that's the message at the top, Well, it's no surprise to see its effects flow through society from social media trends or phone behavior that harms teenagers to abuses and scandals in Hollywood. The tragic reality of wolf like behavior by some within churches. The behavior of many here in our offices in the city. And where God's word is ignored, these are the fruits. It's a story that shows us a stark picture of the world. But it's also a warning about the slippery slope of sin. And as we consider this just for a few moments, it's important to recognize that well, all of us here this morning face temptation to sin. And so we need to hear this warning that we would battle it and not let it grow. And in chapter 13 here, it's particularly applied to the slippery slope of sexual sin. And whilst we may not have behaved anything like Amnon, well, none of us will be sinless in this area. And many of us here will face particular temptations to sin sexually. And this story warns us that it's a dangerous thing to indulge sinful sexual desire. And whilst we may face particular, different particular temptations, one area that is a real danger in our society at the moment is that of pornography. About 15 years ago, the author Tim Chester wrote the book Captured by a Better Vision, It's a book written to help those who are battling the use of pornography. And in one of the early chapters, he makes the point of exposing the damage caused to individuals who are caught up in the industry. And then he shows that many acts of sexual violence have followed from the habitual use of pornography. But whether it's pornography, whether it's flirtation with someone who's not our husband or wife, whether it's other forms of sexual sin... It's dangerous to indulge it. This story shows us it leads to harm and it harms others. It's a warning to stop and to step back up the slope. And if this is an area of struggle for you, well, today would be a very good day to ask for help because wonderfully there is a way back up the slope. See, in David's kingdom, the rot has set in as he's strayed from God's word. But for the Christian person, we have a better king. His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Whatever we may have picked up from society or from friends or even parents, well, that needn't control us because the Christian person is ruled by a just and good king. And his spirit lives within us so that we might grow in his likeness. And he gives us the resources to engage in resisting temptation, in battling sin, so that we can live lives of love, For our neighbour. See, 2 Samuel 13 is not the end of the story. But before we look further forward, the story in 2 Samuel gets worse because we see a tragic absence of justice. And this is our second point the effects of injustice. In verse 21, we're told when David heard of all these things, he was very angry. David was rightly angry, he'd heard all that Amnon had done. But perhaps in verse 23, we read the most haunting chapters, uh, haunting words in this chapter. Verse 23, we simply read, after two full years. Two full years have passed since this has happened, and David has done nothing. Amnon's sin deserves punishment. Love for Tamar would demand her vindication. Retribution would give her a future and would lift her up from the ash heap. But justice has not even been pursued. And instead, we are told she lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And through this chapter, while well, David's passivity considers, we read in verse 22 of Absalom's anger at this crime. We read that he spoke to Amnon, neither good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And without any justice being served, where Absalom's desire for vengeance grows. And in the end, in the same way that Amnon manipulated David to get to Tamar, Absalom manipulates him to get to Amnon. David even seems suspicious in verse 26 as Absalom asks Amnon to go to the sheep shearing feast with him. Why should he go with you? But in the end, he doesn't resist. And so verse 28, then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. And it's another terrible crime. But again, David does nothing. Instead of pursuing Absalom to Geshur and pursuing justice, well, three years pass and nothing takes place. And then in chapter 14, we get this strange story of the woman of Tekoa. She's sent by Joab to try and persuade David to bring Absalom back. And if you get a chance to read it, well, you'll see it's just so full of moral ambiguity. What the woman says is kind of slippery and unclear. And David is further exposed for a lack of any clear sense for justice. He can't see through it. So Absalom is brought back and it's a vague attempt to show him mercy. But in the absence of justice and atonement for sin, it just doesn't work. And two more years pass. The kingdom drifts along and the loose ends of sin and injustice remain. And perhaps we're asking, well, why is it got like this? What's happened to David? And its roots are back in chapter 11. We see he's a compromised king, a leader who's compromised will struggle to bring perfect justice. And that's the world, isn't it? And we see in David the limitations of human justice. And I wonder if we also see not only is David compromised, but he's under the Lord's judgment. Back in chapter 12, the Lord said, To David, as a result of his sin, the sword shall never depart from your house. And I wonder if here actually we see that judgment being worked out. But in God's sovereignty, it's being worked out through David's failure to act justly. And so we have a story of sin and injustice, which shows us the way of the world ruled by human beings. Well, we live in a nation, don't we, where we have much to give thanks for. We experience The blessings of a justice system which has its roots really in a Christian foundation and a residual concern for justice. But we see also that it is imperfect. Think of the post office IT scandal that we see in the news right now. And some of us may know the particular pain of suffering and injustice that has just not been dealt with. And so these chapters leave us longing for another chapter in the story. They leave us looking for a king who can deal with sin and who can, bring in, who can bring justice and who can give us the world we want. And wonderfully, well, there is such a king because this is not the end of the story. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the high point of David's kingdom where he encountered God's promise that he would establish an eternal king from David's line who would rule with steadfast love and righteousness. Well, today, the true son of David, Jesus Christ, the righteous, does reign. And these chapters are designed to turn our eyes to him so that we would come to him and put our trust in him. Because Jesus is the king who deals with sin fully and executes perfect justice. The apostle Paul writes that through Jesus, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them at the cross. See, where we experience the consequences of sin against us, we can be assured that Jesus is not a distant passive king like we see David being in this chapter. In fact, he is the king who knows what it means to suffer. Pilate announced three times in Jesus' trial that I find no guilt in him, and yet he suffered at the hands of sinful men. But Jesus walked through suffering to resurrection life. And there's just a glimpse of this pattern in our verses this morning. We read that Tamar wore a robe with long sleeves. Did you see that in verse 18? And you'll see the footnote tells us that that can be more literally translated, a robe of many colours. And there's only one other person in the Bible who wore a robe of many colours. You might remember it is Joseph. And Joseph too was mistreated by his half-brothers and left desolate and left with a torn robe. And that was not the end of his story. Because if he was raised up from the ash heap, and he was raised up to sit with princes to inherit a seat of honor, and if that happened to Joseph, well, we look at Tamar and think, perhaps that will happen to her too. Perhaps there's an end to this story. And so we remember how the story goes for those who entrust themselves to the Lord and his true king. And we see that with Jesus, there's healing and hope today and assurance one day of life in his new creation, where the effects of sin will be gone forever and all things are made new. See, Jesus is not a passive distance king. And Jesus is the king that brings perfect justice. Paul again declares that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Where human justice fails, Jesus will not. Jesus sees all and he is not passive. We can ask him for recompense and we know he will vindicate. There is comfort in his righteous judgment. Because Jesus will judge, he will not tolerate evil. He's defeated it at the cross And he will destroy it forever. And it is because of the cross that we have this hope. It's because at the cross, gloriously, sin is taken seriously, including our own. So that justice can be done and tender mercy can be extended. And so we can draw near to our king and know his care as forgiven people and trust him for justice. The cross means hope for sufferers and the cross means hope for sinners. It may mean be that some of us this morning have been particularly convicted of sin and recognized as an area where we need to repent. Well every single one of us this morning are sinners in need of a savior. And we read those words from Romans 3 earlier and they're such vital words. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And it goes on. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because Jesus took upon himself the judgment our sin deserves. The penalty for sin has been paid. The power of sin has been broken. And we have a fresh start. Helen Rosevere was a missionary in the Congo in the 20th century. In her biography, Give Me This Mountain, she writes honestly about her experience of suffering and mistreatment during the Civil War there. But it's an amazing book because in it she also writes honestly of her battle with sin. And she also writes beautifully of her trust in the rule of King Jesus. And she writes this, which gives us great hope. Once repentance is real and forgiveness sought, the past is the past and has no longer an interpretation in the present. The present may well be different from the might have been. It may well be affected by the consequences of previous disobedience or sin. But nevertheless, it's the best in the immediate now. And she writes, I found this to be a most liberating and glorious truth. The writer of the Hebrews puts it like this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 2 Samuel chapter 13 and 14 are a story of sin and injustice, but they are not the end of the story. Instead, they point us to the king who deals with sin and who brings perfect justice, which the end of the book of Samuel tells us, Is like when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. The name of that one is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we acknowledge the reality of pain and sin and injustice in our world, we give you thanks for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Thank you that he died on the cross to pay the just penalty for sin so that we can confess our sin and know forgiveness. Help us please to turn from sin in repentance and faith and know his cleansing. Thank you that in the Lord Jesus, evil is defeated. And thank you that he is risen and will execute perfect justice so that we can know vindication. Thank you that as we come to him for refuge as sinners and as sufferers, we find rest for our souls under his good rule. Thank you that in the Lord Jesus, we receive a living hope, an inheritance without sin, suffering or sadness. That in the Lord Jesus, there is a bright future.